0: Today's our guest is Amy Silvis from Silvis Capital. Welcome, uh, Amy.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's such a delight to be here today.
0: Awesome, and thank you very much. And would you share a little bit more about your background, Amy?
1: Absolutely. So as you said, my name is Amy Silvis. I'm the principal and founder of Silvis Capital. I currently live in Los Angeles with my amazing husband. Uh, We are both born and raised here. And with Silvis Capital, uh, we buy and operate large multifamily properties in emerging markets throughout the United States and invite busy professionals to invest alongside of us to take advantage of not having to deal with tenants, termites, and toilets.
0: Got it. Awesome. Awesome. So, and you have some pharmaceutical, biochemistry, biological background. So what is the reason behind shifting towards real estate and multifamily space?
1: I love that question. It's really a shift in mindset where uh, I always thought that I would need to trade my time for money and l- discovering and understanding that I didn't have to do that, that I could generate passive income whether I was asleep, whether I was traveling the world with my husband, uh, whether I'm attending football games, uh, that was really a mindset shift, mindset shift to me. Um, I was born with a serious lung condition called cystic fibrosis and knew that because of the nature of the disease, my lungs were going to deteriorate slowly over time to where I may not be able to work or trade my time for money. So uh, it really, once I became aware of this concept of passive income, I was extremely motivated uh, to, to get into that space. And uh, I'll say one last thing, my health is amazing now. <laughs> I got a miracle medication a few, a few years ago, but it's really that background and that mindset that brought me into the multifamily investing space through apartments.
0: Got it. And thank you. What exactly you did to shift your mindset?
1: You know, I stumbled upon the little uh, purple book that I think all of us are familiar with, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it really, you know, exploded my mind in a great way. You know, I come from a very humble, middle class background. My father still does manual labor in his late 60s. And, you know, concepts like financial freedom and passive income were just never part of the discussion or anything I was ever exposed to growing up. So it really took personal development and, you know, reading and exploring what's out there for me to wrap my head around what's possible.
0: Would you share any, you know, thought process or you know any books that impacted your thinking process apart from knowledge rich dad product?
1: You know, I think also kind of in that series, uh, Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright, another incredible book, again, understanding, as a W-2 wage earner, uh, as someone with a job, taxes are just kind of what they are. And maybe you can defer them by you know, getting a child tax credit or buying an owner-occupied home or contributing to your 401k or such. But that book really helped open my eyes to the incentives that the government gives to legally reduce taxes as an investor and as a business owner. So just icing on the cake to uh, the passive income strategy that I have adopted is yeah, saving a ton of money on taxes, which isn't available as a regular employee.
0: Got it. Got it. Thank you. What is your passive investing strategy?
1: So yeah, I own and operate large multifamily properties with my investors. So that generates cash flow uh, quarter after quarter as we hold those properties and operate them and provide safe, secure, affordable housing to to our residents. So obviously, I've got third-party property management on the ground. I am the asset manager, and uh, that allows me to have freedom of time to do what I want.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And what is your investment philosophy?
1: So the first part is emerging markets. I don't know if anyone's read this book by Dave Lindahl about emerging markets, but it's a fairly common uh, thought process in the industry that I think is so helpful, and it's the fact that every market goes through cycles. Every geography has its own cycle, and it can be different from state to state, city to city, from you know an emerging market to oversupply to recession. So we spend a lot of time researching, gathering data points to understand which markets are emerging, meaning people are flooding to those cities to relocate, jobs are growing, government is pouring in uh, money for infrastructure investment, et cetera, et cetera. So understanding those markets are a cornerstone of our investment strategy and doing kind of a top-down approach of first understanding those markets and then choosing a value-add property where we can do something to improve the property where residents are interested in perhaps paying a little bit more to get a nicer unit. Uh, We tend to focus on those properties.
0: Awesome, and, and uh, since you're following that uh, emerging market trends and market cycle stuff, so so you, I guess you're focusing on Southeast markets. And so, what other factors you would consider, you know, uh, before you know jumping into any markets?
1: Yes, as I mentioned, you know, we've we've all seen what's been dubbed the Great Migration over the past two years, right? The this pandemic caused many people to move, whether they just wanted to get out of big cities or whether they finally had the ability to work remotely so they didn't have to live physically in the location where they were employed. So we followed those demographic changes, those migration patterns very closely. And then, of course, also studied uh, local economies. So, you know, compared to the national average of unemployment, how is a market's unemployment rate? Uh, what kind of laws do they have, do, do lo- local, uh, excuse me, localities have in place to incentivize business development? Are there Laws that prevent, you know, unfairly landlords from removing tenants who don't pay. Uh, You know, we don't want to be slumlords, but we'd like, you know, fair laws and laws that are that are balanced with both the landlords and the residents. So we look at a few of those data points to really determine and hone in on where we would like to purchase.
0: Awesome. Awesome. got it. Uh, and what's your acquisition criteria? What size of DS you are looking and what class of properties you are looking?
1: Yeah, so we really changed our strategy. We we were comfortable in the class C, as in Charlie, uh, type asset class a few years ago. But given inflation, given what may be an impending recession, uh, unfortunately, those folks are going to be hardest hit uh, by a recession, by inflation. So, we're exclusively in the class B or better type space right now because we feel like those residents are able to better absorb some more negative economic economic events, if you will. Uh, we were obvious also previously looking at 100 plus units, but we have broadened that criteria to be a little bit smaller simply because we think there's an opportunity now with maybe some mom and pop owners who may not be able to weather a recession all that well. And uh, we'd like to be able to pick up those properties should they become available.
0: What is the minimum size of bills you are looking for uh, those type of properties? Are you following any kind of strategies? Like are you going to purchase multiple properties in the same location, something like that?
1: Yes, if we're not already in a market, yeah, we we, we need at least 100 units. Uh, but if we're going to be entering uh, it, or if we're already in an existing market, we'll look as small as 40 or 50 units uh, because we already have the economies of scale. So um, adding a smaller property like that won't be negatively impacted by lack of economies of scale.
0: Got it, got it. Uh, and also like during our offline conversation mentions, you're strong at, you know, capitalizing and inve- investor relations. Uh, would you share like, you know, what kind of processes or what kind of, you know, marketing strategies you're implementing uh, from capitalizing point of view?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, I do investor relations and living in Los Angeles, there are many people that I just have conversations with through my networks through socializing, through what I do on my day-to-day basis, people that are very smart and savvy and understand that investing exclusively in paper assets like stocks, bonds, and mutual funds means that they are not diversified. Mm -hmm. Um, Having hard assets, especially during times of inflation, um, like cash-flowing real estate, like commodities, Mm -hmm. like bullion, gold and silver bullion, can be very helpful in terms of averaging out portfolio performance. So Yeah, it is just through talking about what I do and helping people understand what exactly that looks like to invest alongside of us passively and and earn a great return without all the hassles.
0: Got it. Uh, And as investor relations, would you share any typical challenges or typical conversations with the investors?
1: That's a good question. Challenges. You know, I think rightfully so, people want to develop a relationship. You know, the SEC requires us to, of course. But um, it's a big deal to invest in a deal where your money may be tied up for four to five years. Um, And so, you know, I get a lot of really great and profound questions from potential investors that want to understand what our thought process is, what our values are, how we troubleshoot through inevitable obstacles, because that's always part of this. So I think it's really just having that transference and helping people understand who we are, what we do uh, and gaining their trust. So I wouldn't say it's a challenge or an obstacle necessarily, but it's just part of the process that inevitably takes time and is something people need to feel comfortable with.
0: Got it. So and what kind of challenges you faced at initial stages of that process? Uh,
1: just getting into multifamily or being in investor relations? Uh, or being
0: in investor relations.
1: Okay. Initial challenges. You know, I wasn't really, I, I think the concept of selling what was something that really made me nervous. I don't think anyone likes to be sold to. It feels icky. It feels weird. Sometimes it can feel pushy or unwanted. And it was, it was a block for me because I know I do very cool things. I know I help a lot of our investors, all of our investors, in this space. So thinking about how I could spread the word about what I did and why it was helpful without being, you know, a pushy salesman where people thought, "Oh gosh, you know, this this feels gross. She's trying to sell something to me, and I don't want it." Was something I really needed to overcome. Thankfully, with a mindset shift, that was that was uh, pretty effective in overcoming it simply in the fact that, you know, I'm just offering an opportunity. This is not for everybody. Um, and I am not shy about saying it. Some people want to be purely in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Great. This isn't for them. I am not the type of person where I nor will I ever be, you know, someone to try to make a, a square peg fit in a round hole. So yeah, we're, the, the mindset shift of if this is helpful, if this information is helpful, wonderful, let's continue the conversation. But if it's not yeah, it's, it's uh, the last thing I want to do is be salesy. So I've been able to overcome that.
0: Got it. So what you share any any best multifamily investing experience so far?
1: Ooh, the best one. You know, I think the most, the most satisfying thus far was we purchased a 67 unit property in July of 2020. Uh, and I think everyone remembers <laughs> what was going on there at that time, right? Yeah. National unemployment was above 10%. Uh, GDP just shrank quarter over quarter by 35%. it's been two years, but these statistics are just still so mind blowing to hear. And yet there we were saying, yep, we are gonna dive in during this economic uncertainty and we're going to invest. And here we are, uh, two years later, we sold the property, made over 30% annual return over the past two years, a great reward from being able to uh, invest and dive in during uncertain, ter- uncertain times. We were really able to help those residents too. Uh, you know, that, that is one of the best parts of what we do is treating residents well and, and making sure that they've got a great home where they can raise children and, you know, build community. So during COVID, there was a lot of disruption, right? People lost their jobs. People didn't know how they were going to pay, be able to pay rent. So being able to work with each individual and treating them well uh, to work together, to, to get their rent paid, uh, to get the help that they needed, to make sure everyone was safe and healthy. It was a challenge, but will always be one of the most rewarding properties um, I've ever gone full cycle on.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And uh, and also, would you share any challenging or worst uh, real estate or multifamily experience so far?
1: Sure. Sure. I think one of the most challenging moments I've endured was one of the first properties I purchased uh, was a scatter site in, in Tennessee, out just outside of Nashville. And the day after we purchased the property and took it over, we received a call from the property manager letting us know that there was a wheelchair-bound woman that was leasing an apartment on a second floor without, there was no elevator, we, you know, these were just tiny little quadplexes scattered throughout the city. And this poor woman, in order to move in and out of her unit, was having to scoot down these stairs on her tush to be able to get in and out of her residence. And I'm just thinking, who put this woman with accessibility issues in this second floor unit? And people obviously can see that she's wheelchair bound. This isn't, you know, something that's invisible. So, you know, just like anyone would, I had panic in my heart, thinking, well, we have to help her. We have to help her immediately. This isn't you know, laws and legal regulations, uh, you know, aside, just as a person, we can't have someone, you know, trying to navigate their life in the place where they live by scooting downstairs on their tush. That's just heartbreaking. So yeah, it was a, it was an emergency situation where we got in contact with a resident. We had our property manager manager get in touch with her and let her know, Hey, you know, we're, we're realizing here just a day after we purchased the property, that this is your situation. Uh, Our intention is to find you a unit that's accessible to you, that's wheelchair accessible, and relocate you as soon as possible. And if we can't do that within a day or so, you know, we'll put you up at a hotel at our expense, pay your moving expenses, whether it's to the hotel or to the other unit, and just make sure you're in a good situation. Needless to say, the resident was incredibly grateful and, you know, we, and and felt our compassion and our desire to really care for her. But, you know, it's just a, it's a reminder of this isn't, you know, these aren't just names on a spreadsheet or on a rent roll. These are people with challenges just like we all have and, you know, just a desire to live a safe, comfortable life. So it was a challenge to execute all the things that we mentioned. All's well that ends well. It really, um, you know, she still lives in our in our complex and is, you know, a great resident, but uh, it, was, it was quite a frightening time, uh, if I'm candid, because we just wanted to make sure she was okay and to do the right thing.
0: Awesome! I think yeah, you guys did great job there. And so, what's your take on current market situation? How exactly how you're approaching current market?
1: Yes, we're in a fascinating time, aren't we? <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> of course, yeah.
1: without a doubt. Yeah, interest rates have rose. It doesn't appear that that sellers have quite caught up to how much more capital uh, is costing buyers. So I don't know about you, but we've seen maybe 10% decrease in prices, that may be generous. Um, But yeah, buyers and sellers in the multifamily space are really in price discovery mode. So we are underwriting very conservatively still. Uh, We're expecting interest rates to keep going up as the Fed uh, says that they will. If they don't, so much the better, but we're not going to assume anything other than what the Fed is telling us. And, you know, we may be heading into a recession. So that means, again, we haven't really deviated from how we underwrite because our underwriting is always conservative with projecting higher exit caps, higher interest rates on our debt, and possibly slower rent growth or no rent growth with our units. So that being said, we all understand there is no one United States real estate market, right? Real estate is hyper local. And we know during the last real estate downturn, you know, Los Angeles real estate didn't perform the same as Dallas, Texas, or New York or Florida, right? Everything is different in terms of supply, demand, uh, housing inventory, all of that. So we're choosing markets that have Industries that are recession resistant, not recession proof, but recession resistant, and have good valuations. We have to purchase uh, at the right price. So, just doubling down on our conservatism. In summary,
0: got it. Yeah. Well, what's your current focus, maybe?
1: In terms of location or
0: overall approach, you know. So, what kind of assets and you know, what kind of markets you're focusing on? What are the next steps? Yeah.
1: Yes, Huntsville, Alabama. We still love. We still love many markets in Tennessee. Uh, and the Carolinas, and even Kentucky and in Southern Indiana. We really, really like those markets. We think they've got strong foundations. Anything can change at any time. So we're constantly moderate, monitoring them. But buying 1980s build, Class B, or better assets in those markets, of course, at the right price with the right business plan, it is still our focus.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And any personal habits that are helping you to be successful?
1: Um, I'm a big miracle morning person, if you read the book by Hal Elrod. So essentially getting up, uh, journaling or scribing, uh, saying affirmations out loud, visualizing goals, um, exercising, reading, and then doing some sort of prayer and meditation, doing all of those things, those five things I mentioned, the the acronym is SAVERS. For 10 minutes each, so that totals uh, just to an hour or so or a little bit more if I spend more time on each. Really sets my mind uh, for the day as I review my goals and charge towards them. Um, I'm reading and understanding that our brain and our subconscious is more active when we, you know, first thing in the morning as we're rising. So we're more impressionable. So what we feed our brains first thing in the morning instead of turning over to the news and, you know, hearing alarmist things, focusing inward and and focusing on feeding our brains good food in the morning uh, can make a huge difference. So that's been helpful for me.
0: Cool. Cool. And any books that impacted your life and pathway about from rich dad, poor dad.
1: Yeah, rich dad, poor dad, definitely did. You know, I I don't know if you've heard of the book called The Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. It's a history of the Federal Reserve. Uh, it's a deep topic, but and it's a it's a long read. <laughs> but I still encourage everyone to read it because no more time in history has this book been relevant in understanding the history of. The monetary system of the Federal Reserve, how it impl- impacts inflation, and of course, we all know the more history you study, the further into the future you can see.
0: Got it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And someone mentioned Fed Up or something, you know, recently.
1: Someone mentioned what? I'm sorry.
0: Fed Up. The book name is Fed Up.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Is that about the Federal Reserve as well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Same ah, gotcha. Same
1: yeah. Okay.
0: And how are you giving back to community?
1: I love that. So I mentioned uh, earlier that uh, people with cystic fibrosis received a miracle medication right before the pandemic in November of 2019. It's changed all of our lives. It's not a cure, but most of us, it's made our health significantly better, allowed us to make plans and dream and hope for a longer, healthier life. Unfortunately, 10% of people with cystic fibrosis have genetic mutations that this medication does not work on. So- You can imagine being a part of this group where you see your community thrive and get better and build families and have careers, and you're still stuck suffering from this awful illness that slowly destroys your lungs. So I'm very active in helping to fund research and advocate for the spinal 10% of the cystic fibrosis population and an organization called EMILY's Entourage. Uh, I know Emily kramer Gollenkoff, which the organization is named after very well. She's an incredible woman. Uh, Nothing will stop her from finding medication that works for this group of people. So financially supporting her uh, and the cause is incredibly important to my husband and I. So we put a lot of our focus and attention on that.
0: Awesome. And how can listeners connect with you, Amy?
1: Yes silviscapital.com is a great place to reach out to me. I'm sure you'll put the spelling uh, in the show notes, but it's spelled s y l v i s. And yeah, you can get in touch with me there. I'd love to talk to you. Meeting new people is one of the best parts of what I do, so I look forward to that.
0: Awesome. And thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for sharing your, you know, journey and, you know, best and challenging experiences. Thank you very much.
1: My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Sure. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP 360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.